I am brave. I am brave, courageous Eleanor Oliphant. Hello, I'm Kennedy Weibel. And I'm Rebecca Capone. And this is Reading Pop Classics. Today we're discussing the 2017 debut novel by Gail Honeyman, Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine. Honeyman wrote the book over approximately two years while working a full-time job. When it was released, it won the Costa Debut Novel Award, and that's an award for English language novels for writers based in the UK and Ireland as well as several of the British Book Awards, which are somewhat obviously literary awards for British writers. Uh, They're given out for different categories, kind of like the Oscars are for in the US for films. Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine, won Best Debut Book of the Year, as well as Best Marketing Strategy. The book was also picked for Reese's Book Club, a book club in the style of Oprah's Book Club, but this one is headed by Reese Witherspoon, star of films like Fear, Freeway, Election, and Legally Blonde. Uh, Eleanor Oliphant was a smashing success sales-wise, a bestseller in both the UK and the US. And as of this podcast, there's a film version being developed by Reese Witherspoon's production company. Rebecca, did we pass the Bechdel test this time? This does pass the Bechdel test. This definitely is the easiest pass we've had of any of the books we've done. A hundred percent. She talks to Laura. She talks to um, shop girls, the girls who are doing um, like her wax and her manicure. And they and they don't all, t- you know, they don't all talk about men. Um, no, we didn't. I, I didn't have to search for anything in this one. She just has lots of conversations with people. Not about there isn't really any romance in this. I guess suppose there is some, but there isn't a love interest um, in the traditional sense for Eleanor that these women would be asking her about. Right. Not in the traditional sense. Um, there's also something, there's also a lot of conversation. There is a lot of interaction with other characters in the book. There's a lot of dialogue in this book. Um, so I think it's worth sort of mentioning that because that does amplify a book being able to pass the Bechdel test if it has even a few female characters and if there is a lot of dialogue based on the fact that the Bechdel test is about, uh, focuses on conversations between women. Um, so I think there are some other books we've read where it's like, there's just not any, even salvage the bones. There's just really not any conversations between Ash and another female in the book. She doesn't talk to another woman in that one. So, and then we discussed the the many ways in which that book does have this female perspective and a female view and, um, and an eye towards femininity. Um, but this book, yes, uh, Eleanor Oliphant very easily passes the Bechdel test. But again, part of that is that there are a lot of conversations in this book. So one of the things I want to kick our conversation off with is at the end of our last episode, we said we were going to step away from some of the weightier, heavier books that we had been going through. We had talked about World War II. We've talked about addiction and, and spiraling alcoholism and pills. We've gone through the, the the trauma of losing a parent and Katrina and that we were going to take on something a little bit lighter. We did. Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. Did you find this book to be light? I did not. And so that brings me to something (laughs) I wanted to talk about, um, about this book. I expected a fun, jaunty little read with a quirky main character. And I was actually pleasantly surprised at the depth of this book um, and the depth of this book. And I think maybe the view of 
the view of of therapy in the view of changing in the view of of dealing with emotional baggage the way emotional baggage um, affects people the book actually takes the time to address it to show us the the process of healing and the process of going through therapy and the process of getting better it doesn't just tell us eleanor goes to therapy and starts feeling better it doesn't shortcut it we actually go through the conversations with our ther- with her therapist we go through the actual process and it's treated seriously and it is. and 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 it is it's a novel it is a little bit abridged obviously but the book takes the time to actually deal with it in as as part of the plot and part of her her journey um to sound very millennial part of her her journey is the whole book so as we learned in the book i mean she starts you know she has this these interactions with raymond that are less unpleasant than than what she's kind of, than what we kind of see her dealing with um in her day to day and that opens her to new experiences it opens her to meeting and interacting with more people and and receiving kindness from people and and having people sort of accept her weirdness and not bully her about it or or have these you know sort of look past the awkwardness right some people are really good at at working at dealing with somebody who's awkward and just sort of pretending they're not and continuing on the conversation and maybe making that person feel a little better or a little less awkward, like not, not agreeing to give into like, Oh my God, this person's so awkward. So like, I'm also going to treat them weirdly and let this interaction continue to get weirder and more awkward. Right. There are kind people in the world who sort of see like, okay, this person's a little different. I'm going to handle my conversation with them a little differently, or I'm going to overlook this and handle this conversation very quote unquote normally and and give this person a normal interaction so i feel like the journey really begins it it, the journey is throughout the whole book we do learn that she is sort of seeking she's trying to change herself she's trying to put herself you know you use the quote that she's very brave and we see that throughout the book that she's willing to try these new these new things she's willing to try these new social interactions She's willing to get her hair cut, let somebody do her makeup. And again, we see that she's kind of not, it, it's not quite the right stimulus that she's looking to make these changes. It's its led by this very childish view and very childish crush on this Johnny Loman character, um, <laughs> which is which is what causes the big breakdown. And then therefore, that gives her that rock bottom from which she can do some actual healing. Um, but that is such, that is a part of her journey. And this book has been in my house for quite some time. I believe my mom sent me this book um, or some other family member, either either my mom or our niece has sent me this book. Did you give me this book? I think I sent it to mom. I think mom sent it to you. I think so. This book did not. Um, the well, this is so let me let me interject for a minute. Go ahead. This is I said in the intro, I wanted to talk a little bit about the marketing. It was given an award for best marketing strategy. The marketing of this book is deceptive. And I'm an adult, you're an adult. I understand that the blurbs and the marketing around books are almost never actually indicative of what is inside the book because someone wrote down between 250 and 500 pages of text and being able to encapsulate it in. 75 words on the back is just not really feasible. They do their best. But like this book is marketed as like bitingly funny. And wow, what a zany sort of Bridget Jones-esque character. Or it reminds me of Jane Austen novel 
Nicholson. There are some parts in this book that made me laugh. There is humor in it. Like it's, it, it focuses on the absurd, but this book has some horrific, horrific things happen to children. Like it is deeply, deeply, the book focuses pretty deeply on the horror of a person's life. And it's, it's not a comedy. It's not lighthearted. Correct. My impression of this book, so to, to speak to the marketing, you know, my, my mom sent me this book and for what it's worth and for my mom who is going to listen to this podcast, she has recommended wonderful books over the years. Um, our listeners can probably tell from some of the discussions we've had that, you know, Kennedy and I have been sharing books with our mom for years. We've been discussing them for years and years. My mother has great taste in books, but she sent me this one and I just was not, I, I don't know. I just kept like passing over it in favor of reading other things. And it is partly and I don't mean to sound like a snob, but like it's in Reese's book club. The back of it is soon to be a, mo a major motion picture. The little tagline is like, no one's ever told Eleanor that life should be better than fine, which sounds like a Netflix rom-com. The blurb on the back led me to believe that this was going to be a silly little rom-com that was cute and had a weird quirky character. And like that was where its literary value was. So I know that we shouldn't be judging books by their covers or their blurbs, but I did. And this was not a book that appealed to me. Um, I also Kennedy, just want to say, I disagree. I disagree with the whole, like we've been told our whole lives, don't judge books by their cover. Get out of here. Of course, That's what the cover is there for. <laughs> that's why they put a cover on it. That's why they write a blurb is for me to, but I, anyhow, I digress. That is the point of the cover in my opinion. <laughs> so, but go on. It is. There are, I have, I've, yeah. I certainly have been in a bookstore and my eye has been caught by a cover of a book that looks like that's a book that looks like I'm is going to be something I want to read. Like you do get a feeling in a sense. And this to me, this to me looked like it was just going to be some silly little rom-commy book that didn't have a lot of depth or value to it. And I was not interested in reading it. And to be honest, when you recommended that we pick this book, I have, I have seen it on shelves and stuff for, you, you know, for a long time, I've seen it on bookshelves. I've heard of it. You know, I've heard people mention it. And I wasn't excited to read this book. I wasn't dreading it or anything. I figured it would be like fine and entertaining and a quick read. And then it, and it was so much more than that. And it was not a quick read um, necessarily. No, it's I mean, long. I, it's, it's almost 400 pages. It's, it's almost it's, 400 pages. I kept feeling like, oh, I must be halfway done. And then I would look at the book and be like, I am not. No, it's long. It's not a quick read, and and it had just so much. It's just a surprising amount of depth to it. Um, and I and I really enjoyed this book. I'm a little bit fascinated with its ascendancy. I know if you slap Oprah's book club or Reese's book club on a book, you are in, you're going to get higher sales. This doesn't feel like a book that should be as popular as it is. This feels like a book that a dedicated audience of cult enthusiasts should be like pressing on people, but it doesn't feel like it should have been the major bestseller and blockbuster that it was, or that it would, you know, I guess it feels like it would have a movie. It feels very cinematic the way it's set up, but the it's dark. It's a dark, it's a dark book. And I don't say that as a dig, this really falls into a, a wheelhouse that appeals to me where the tone has a sort of cheerful fatalism to it. Like Eleanor is very glib about incredibly dark things in her life. It, our opening 
our opening 200 words or whatever it is ends with um, that line. Perhaps he could also tell that I'd never need to take time off to go on a honeymoon or request maternity leave. I don't know. It's tossed off, but it's, it, it obviously hints at the sort of sad and depressing nature of Eleanor's life. I always like that, the a sort of tonal imbalance. But I am also very aware that that's not necessarily a very popular tone. <laughs> like, like Chuck Palahniuk's Fight Club isn't for everybody for a reason. Like, it's a... Right it takes dark things very lightly and it paints light things very darkly and this does some of that it is not quite in the it's not writing the exact same well i'll use the london uh bus system metaphor it might be riding the same bus as fight club it's just sitting on a different level so those nice. are two stories that's a yeah i like yeah. that metaphor I'm, that was good yeah I'm, yeah i'm worldly um but <laughs> but it, it has that you mentioned um I think you might have mentioned before we started recording, but like Eleanor's take on very common things in life points out the absurdity of things that we take for granted. What is it? it juxtaposes the fact that she might seem like an absurd and awkward person next to these things that are next to these things that seem commonplace because we're so used to them. But, uh, you know, if you dig a little below the surface are very weird things to do. Uh, McDonald's. I think was one of the ones that you liked her trip to have, McDonald's. Yeah, I have a few examples of that. This book is, to be oxymoronic, it's sort of hilariously nihilistic. Yeah, that's a, yeah, sort of cheerful fatalism is is how I like to think of things like this, and it's a tone that I like. I'm just surprised this hit with audiences the way it did. Right. It it does that does seem it it's that's kind of literary. I guess, in a way that I had not expected this book to be. I had expected this book to just be a little more surface and like a little light, fluffy, rom-com-ish type of book. And then, and then, yes, it has this, again, just to use my my own expression, this kind of hilariously nihilistic um, style to it, which I am with you. I really enjoyed. And it does kind of surprise me that that hits so well with, with so many audiences. I kind of feel like, and this is judgmental, I suppose, but I just would feel like the people that were picking up this book would not enjoy this. I would expect that they would, I wouldn't expect, I wouldn't expect, I guess, so many people to enjoy it. I'm trying to remember some other Reese's book club picks that I've read. I feel like they, like Oprah's book club, have a little weight to them. Uh, little Fires Everywhere, I think, was a Reese pick. I could be mistaken. I'm not going to look it up. We'll it just, might, if that's, if I, that's inaccurate, that's one, fine. She's in the, she's in the, one of those um, two adaptation. book clubs. One of those two book clubs, I am fairly certain, pick, picked up that book. Th that's a really good point, though, too. And I think um, when we're talking about, we're talking about, you know, judging books by its covers, I feel like it's, we should also not be judging books by book clubs, um, by Oprah's and Reese's book club, because you're you were not incorrect in that both of them have picked some really, um, some really good books. I mean, they, they are not, I, I, I suppose that like seeing like it was a combination of things for me that made this book unappealing to me. So please nobody write in to be like, why do you hate Reese Witherspoon? I love Reese Witherspoon. I think she's a, a, I also like Reese Witherspoon. She's I think one of she America's does. treasures. A hundred percent. She also picks, I think she picks a wide range of very interesting movies to do that appeal to a wide, wide swath of the audience. She's been in everything from American psycho to the adaptation of that nonfiction book wild to uh, a far more consumer friendly fare like Sweet Home Alabama and Four Christmases. And Legally Blonde. 
Um, and the ones that I mentioned at the top, which are not necessarily her most popular movies, but ones that I like, like Freeway and Election. And if you remember when we were kids, A Far Off Place. I love A Far Off Place. Yes. And then Sweet Home Alabama reunites her with her Far Off Place co-star, Ethan Embry. Uh, oh, it but does. Yeah, no, oh, I, nice. Yeah, good point. Forgot about a good that. Good callback, right? Yeah. That is a good callback. Uh, I feel conflicted about book clubs. And I think that it's on me. I don't think it's on the book club because like on the one hand, I really like that Reese, that Oprah are promoting these authors and giving them an audience and giving them a chance to make money and getting people to pick up books and read them. On the other hand, there's a little piece of me that innately dislikes anything that becomes popular. <laughs> and that's the yeah, problem. Sure. I don't that's I don't think that's Reese Witherspoon or Oprah Winfrey's problem. I think that's <laughs> whatever malcontent gene is coursing through my my makeup. But and I think it's also part of being uh, I hate the I hate the term old millennial, but I think it's also part of being an old millennial and having been and having like the people that probably we looked up to when we were young be Gen X. I think I am Gen X. You have missed it by one year. You're an old millennial. No, I am the. Are you? I've, I think you're the cutoff. I think I think you are the first year of millennials, and I am one of the last three years of Gen X. Oh well, there you go. See, it's because you're Gen X, and the people I look up to that that I idolized when I was younger were also Gen X. Like, right? Like that's the, yeah. But I, I the generation I that the I youngest. wanted to emulate and learn from, and, and learn from. And yes, you were, I think, kind of the youngest Gen X. Um, yeah. whereas I, I am sort oldest, of the oldest, the oldest millennial millennial. Yeah. Right. So then, you know, we are kind of influenced, I think maybe by that, um, by that darker, uh, yeah, more like more acerbic generation, which is my, my favorite thing about Gen Xers, to be honest. Um, I love well, that and there's a natural pushback to anything that feels like it's become like uh, corporate sanitized and, uh, you know, put through the machine to be like consumable by the masses. And I suddenly start doubting the legitimacy of it, which again, is not fair to Gail Honeyman or uh, Tony Morrison's beloved, which was, I think a very popular book uh, popularized by Oprah back in the day. One of the the earliest like bangers that she picked. But I also, when this was recommended to me, it was for an actual in-person book club, not Reese's one that had actual meetings and it was described to me though by the by the woman who picked it it was she'd already read it and it was described to the rest of us as like eleanor is so funny like this is just a really funny book and like she just she's my spirit animal she's so hilarious and then i read it and i was like this is this is a disturbing book like there are i've read this before having a child and now i've read it again after having a child and it was way harder after having a kid and it was hard the first time like it's it's tough to read about the things that were happening to, that happened to Eleanor and her sister as children in this book. And there's a certain tension that's built into that, but like, I, I just feel like the marketing is a little deceptive. It's definitely got some humorous parts in it. I, I think it was very funny when she says to herself, if I'm ever unsure as to the correct course of action, I think what would a ferret do? Or how would a salamander respond to this situation? Invariably, I find the right answer. All of that, all of that works for me. But it's a dark book. It is a dark book, but I, we talked in, you and I talked in Confederacy of Dunces, which was, which is a book that is, that is humorous, right? It is not, it is not dark necessarily. 
Um, it has humorous things in it, but we were both discussing that it's like, it's funny, but we, it was described to us as this like rollicking good time, laugh out yeah. loud. Um, I legitimately laughed out loud more than once at Eleanor Oliphant because she is very funny in this yeah. dark, in this dark way. And I appreciate, I appreciate dark humor. And so it's funny that you bring up Ignatius because in the first, I'll say fourth of this book, she has a very Ignatius vibe. Like I know we're calling her awkward and because we finished the book, we understand uh, the point of view of the character, but she's mean. She's not a, she's not a nice person in the beginning. Like when we see her coworkers reacting to her, which is a part of the book that I have a little trouble with um, just in the way it's presented it seems like they're sort of bullying her. It seems like they're she's... bullying her, but then I feel like she's kind of mean. She's mean about them, which makes me wonder if she's mean to them. Or if she's she mean has... to a lot of people in this book. Or if she, she doesn't has realize that... she's being mean, of course, because we see her in her monologue. And so we can forgive it a little bit because we're reading it, but she isn't nice. She's like not nice to retail people right. or bikini waxers or her coworkers who she describes as dullards and i think it's one of the strengths of the novel is that the main character is unlikable and unlikable in a very petty way and we throughout the course of the novel see the unlikable character genuinely make an effort and be helped in becoming a different person yes like not a, not at a shallow level but like deeply investigating their own life and their trauma and like becoming a better version of themselves like in putting in that work. So I also had the, I also had made sort of a note about the similar, the similarities between Eleanor and Ignatius from Confederacy of Dunces, um, because they both kind of don't see that the common denominator in their awkward social interactions is them. Yeah. Right. Everybody else is stupid. Everybody else is, is the one that's the problem. And they don't understand that like, it's because they don't, you know they're not conforming um to some social conventions which is a which is a cool thing about both of their characters right like there is strength and there is um respect i think and strength of character in just being really like who you are and that's something that i like in this book is that eleanor does retain some of that throughout the book even yeah. throughout her changes is that she does sort of like she does sort of retain um sort of be, being true to herself and, and sticking to herself. Like she's making all of these changes, but then there are still some things where it's like, but I mean, this is who I am. Um, a, a, a small example of this, uh, two, two small examples, like towards the end of the book, you know, she's, she's really come to have this better relationship with the counselor and she understands like what the counselor, she starts to understand what the counselor is doing and how the counselor is helping with her but like she makes a comment that she's wearing these like terrible earrings um, <laughs> they're dream catchers they're, they're dream, dream catcher earrings, earrings and she's just like absolutely no and i like the way she punctuates some of her um like she punctuates some of her little judgments with like no period like she'll like describe something and then just like no and i like that um and then the second and then this was like a, a sweeter thing is that she gets back to doing like the crossword puzzles yeah. And that's this like positive part of her routine. It's something that she legitimately enjoys as opposed to in the beginning of the book where it's just, 
it's just what she does. Like she's, she's smart, but she doesn't have a lot of interaction. So like she spends her lunch break doing the crosswords. Um, by the end of the book, it's like, she realizes, and I think we realize is like, well, this is something she legitimately enjoys. And she knows that too, but she sticks, she really sticks to who she is. Um, something else. So Ignatius, Ignatius is, is very rude. Um, and he thinks that he's very smart and he, and he lacks so much. Eleanor, I think is a more intelligent character. Yeah. I think Ignatius, of... Ignatius also is willfully confrontational to the world around him. Eleanor is not. Yes. Like Eleanor is unhappy with the way a lot of her interactions go. She is confused by them. She's not reactionary in the way Ignatius is, who dislikes everything he sees and wishes for an older way. Eleanor doesn't understand. It's right. She legitimately is confused by her awkward, by her awkward social interactions and why things go poorly and why people respond to her the way they do, because she is rude to them and she doesn't see that because it's not yeah. her intention. But something I love and something I love about her that, again, I think differentiate differentiates her from Ignatius. I do, for one, feel like she's more intelligent than Ignatius. They both just share the fact that they do not understand some social values and norms. They they don't pick up social cues correctly. They're both interestingly, inter and maybe this is intentional. I, I I couldn't find a lot of interviews with Gail Honeyman. I didn't find any about uh, Ignatius, but they are both classics. Uh, Ignatius is a medievalist, and I know it's not quite the same thing, but they are both classics majors in, or at least uh, adjacent class, like in the case of Ignatius, sort of adjacent to classic literature. Yeah. Like they both majored in classics. Um, and that's what they both understand is older, older sensibilities. And something I really enjoy about her, because Ignatius also, so her language is, it's, it's formal. It is punctuated with amazing vocabulary. Um, I was like looking up so many words in this book. And I really love that. I really appreciate a solid vocabulary. I made a list language? of almost an, a, a not quite complete list of some of her some of her choices in word, and maybe we can put them on the website and people can. Oh, um, that would be yeah. Yeah, maybe people can do their own um, Eleanor Oliphant Word a Day Challenge. But her language is amazingly direct, um, and 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 then I love that the formality and the vocabulary behind it. Um, but two of her quotes, and I think these are things where she's very true to who she is. These are two quotes that made this woman legitimately my hero because she has a directness that I feel like women sometimes, um, or, or maybe people in general, I suppose my view is, is that of the feminine because I am. But, but these two quotes kind of made me her hero. Um, and the first one is she and, and Ray go to get a drink after they visited Sammy, Tom in the hospital for the first time. Um, and it's her first time going to a bar. And he wants to sit outside. And so she wants to go inside and check out the bar. Like she feels disappointed of like, but this is a way that I'm going to figure out what happens at bars. He's trying to go in to get the drinks because he's because he's polite and kind, right? And so she says, Raymond, I will purchase the drinks. It's important to me for reasons that I do not wish to articulate to you. <laughs> and I love that because it is it's a little bit rude, but like 
is it? It is very much just like, this is something I need to do and I don't need to tell you why. And I love that because women constantly feel the need to explain themselves. And she is just like, I'm not going to do that, but I need to go do this thing. I will. I I, I want to say that to people a lot in my life. Like, no, well, can you tell me a little bit more? No, I don't want, I, you don't need an explanation. It doesn't matter. No is a complete sentence. This is just what I would like. And I don't feel the need to go through a list of reasons and have you objection handle or help me with those reasons. Just the answer is just no, or the yes. answer is yes, or whatever it is. Like, I don't, I don't know. I try, I try to remember that I don't have to explain things. Yes, that is a that is a recent adult revelation for me as well. Don't complain, don't explain is how I try to chant in my head sometimes when I'm like on the cusp of an argument with somebody out there in the world who wants more from me than I'm willing to give. Like that I just Right. Like like you know, turning down social plans is there is this this feeling that if you're saying no, you have to qualify it like, well, you know, I, I have this to do, or I have to do, I have these other plans. I maybe just don't want to go to dinner on a Saturday night. Yeah. I, I also all, find it. I work all day Saturday. <laughs> I might want to come home on Saturday and lay on my couch for the rest of the day. And while that might not seem like a valid excuse to not go out to dinner or not to do this social engagement, it is a valid excuse. I don't want to. I don't want to, and I don't have to explain that more. I can just say like, no, I'm not available. And it doesn't matter what I am doing that makes me unavailable, right? And she has probably never had to have this conversation with herself, and I dig that. Uh, no, I, I, she has a bunch of them like that that I, that I enjoy throughout. And that's one where she's – it's funny, right? And we also know that Ray is patient. And he is kind. patient. He is patient and kind. There's one. There's more... other times. She, there's other times she does it where she's meet. Wait, go ahead and do your other one though. Okay. This is in a similar vein. This is one of the best things I've ever read come out of a woman's mouth. So she's at uh, Keith's 40th birthday party. She's out on the dance floor. <laughs> First of all, the scene with the YMCA. Like the, there are scenes in this book that are legitimately hilarious. Like. They're out there doing the YMCA, which she's never done. And she's super into it because she's like, oh, you can just like do whatever you want for a minute. Then we I, I, I have I have the whole YMCA scene pulled as like a it's it's like half of a regular sheet of paper quote that I have here in my notes. Go ahead. Though. Amazing. <laughs> so she stays on the dance floor even when the YMCA is done and a man starts starts to dance with her. Uh, this group of women has kind of like invited her to come in and join them and dance with them. Um, this guy starts dancing with her. So they assuming, um, that that's what she wants or enjoys. She says that she's, she finds that she's shut out of the group, which is not them being mean, right? It's them trying to be helpful and let her dance with this guy. And the guy offers to buy her a drink. And she says, no, no, thank you. I said, I don't want to accept a drink from you because then I would be obliged. I would be obliged to purchase one for you in return. And I'm afraid I'm simply not interested in spending two drinks worth of time with you. My hero, my hero. I cannot tell you how much there's so many wonderful things in this book. And that was just something that really stood out to me. So when we go back to the Bechdel test, the Bechdel test, and we talk about ways that books represent the feminine experience. This is one for me. Women often, 
and this goes back to us talking about like Esh and Salvage the Bones and and the choices she was making. Women often, I think, feel pressured to accept this politeness, to be polite and to accept things from men, even when you don't want to, because something like this is, quote unquote, mean. But is it? I don't want to have a drink with you. I don't want to keep hanging out. I don't want to spend this much time with you. And most women, I don't think, feel that they have or, like I said, having to explain like why you don't want to go to dinner on a Saturday night or whatever whatever social engagement it is you might be turning down. We always feel this need to explain. I do think that is that does seem to be sort of a particularly feminine hallmark, although I'm sure lots I'm sure that's also a universal experience in a lot of ways. But I love her directness of just like, no, th- she's not rude about it. She says, no, thank you. She explains, I, I don't. I don't I don't want to have to get you a drink and I don't want to hang out with you for two drinks. And I just I think this book does a does that. a very good I think it does a very good job of showing us a scene like this where this sort of reaction is something we like about Eleanor and something that is both funny for the for the reader and like if she were to tell the story to a person who lives within the world of the book would also be funny. There's other times where she is doing the same thing and it is not to the same effect and it is like mean to the person on the other end. I think that's a strength of the novel is that we see both the the power that this kind of um, pers- personality gives her, and we also see that it has less positive effects on people. And we get a main character who is actively trying to reconcile these, to use her tools and her faculties correctly in the world that she wants to be a part of. This is a book that really focuses on the kindness of other people mm-hmm. without without making it mawkish or I don't know, cheesy necessarily. Like Raymond, like I want to talk about Raymond. Let's talk Raymond, about Raymond is is thoughtlessly kind. Like that's how that's what he is, right? Like there isn't an agenda there isn't something that is revealed about him in the backstory that's just sort of like, oh, he was bullied when he was a kid, and that's why he's so... It, there's nothing. He is just... It's just the flat, banal kindness of a human being who just, I don't know, bothers to take five minutes to like be nice to somebody. And it, it it's the driving force of this novel. It is. I agree with that, that it is... He's ju- that he's just a nice person, And I found myself looking a little bit in the book initially. I I found myself a little bit initially looking at like why he was being so kind. I was trying to find a reason that he was like focused on Eleanor. And then I kind of realized that he's, he's not really, um, he's not focused on her. He's not continually seeking things out. Their friendship evolves kind of naturally. She's just so weird that I assume that there had to be some sort of motivator behind it. Yeah. As a reader, we're used to that. And this book does a nice job of like subverting our expectations, I think, with it. But because I, I, same thing, I was just sort of like, oh, he, he's got a cousin who's like this. And he always, or, you know, he, he lost a sister back in the day who was just like this. And he's always had a soft spot for like, I don't know, awkward and sort of mildly unpleasant weirdos or, or he wants to date her. Like I just like a very like it would have been real easy to spin the end of this into a romance that we'd been like waiting to 
culminate through the whole book and didn't. And it doesn't. It, I was it, pleasantly it, surprised. It, 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 it doesn't take it doesn't take a couple of like easy outs that it could, and it just leaves us with a character who I've read in some reviews has been accused of being one dimensional, and he is very one dimensional. I happen to think that it is a strength of the book that he is one dimensional. That a lot of the side characters are very one dimensional. I, I think that actually kind of works for what we're following here. Is that there there isn't an ulterior motive? They're just nice. They're just, I agree with you. Yeah, that's a good point that it's because the book isn't about them. It's about Eleanor and it's about this yeah. journey. And I do hugely seeing it be some of the theme of the book of being how much, how kindness can, how much kindness can change a situation for somebody. When Laura cuts her hair and spins her around and she sees how great she looks in the mirror the quote that what I wrote under that was I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> that was a beautiful moment. I could cry right now talking about it because Laura is just, because Laura is just kind to her. I'll read it for you. So you don't have to do it. You've made me shiny. Laura. I said, I tried to stop it, but a little tear ran down the side of my nose. I wiped it away with the back of my hand before it could dampen the ends of my new hair. Thank you for making me shiny. And Laura's just kind, right? She doesn't, she doesn't have some conversation with her that's like, your your hair, why do you have your hair like this? You've never cut your hair. You're a 30-year-old woman who's walking around looking like a horse girl. By this, I mean girls in middle school who are very into horses. I, I know. I, I'm, I am well aware of horse girls. They real long hair. Sure. Yeah. Real long hair, right? They love that, just like a horse. She doesn't, you know, it's not that. It's just like, Eleanor, I think, expresses some Eleanor is taking a little bit of interest in her appearance. And that's a that's a theme in the book. That's something in the book that I'd like to touch on, but we'll come back to it. But she just offers, like, oh, well, you know, anytime you want to like, well, this is what I do. I do people's hair. You want to come by? You were really nice to my dad, and this is something I can do for you. And it makes such a difference for her, and it changes. And I think this is, I think this is something that again is universal. When you, when you feel, when you feel good about how you look, that does, that does, that gives you a level of confidence. I think it's also, I think their relationship is interesting because later in the book, we're talking about like easy, easy plot points or things that like this book doesn't take later in the book when they meet and there's this brief exchange about, um, Oh, I've been seeing Raymond. Laura says I've been seeing Raymond, and Eleanor's like, "Oh, I've been seeing him too. I've I've had lunch with him." Laura's like concerned for a minute. Was like, "I didn't realize you guys were close." And she's like, "We have lunch." And she's like, "Oh, I see." And and we're getting this from Eleanor's point of view, but it's the opportunity to have them fight over a love interest in this book, or have a misunderstanding that puts them at odds with one another over the perceived over a, a misperception of a love interest in Raymond and the book just doesn't take the bait. Yeah. It, it is cleared up immediately in that conversation and there's no jealousy or resentment. Uh, Laura and Raymond don't stop seeing each other because Raymond spends too much time with Eleanor. Like they're allowed to be two adults who both know the same guy and there isn't but we a conflict do that is inherent in the narrative because there is not some yes you are correct there is not a conflict from it but we do see a little tinge of jealousy from Eleanor which is 
because this is yeah. the point in the book that we are starting to see that her relationship with Raymond and her view of Raymond is changing. Mm-hmm. And we are left And yes, I was really pleased that the book didn't end with like, well, now her and Raymond are together. And so everything's fine because she has a, you know, she has this nice boyfriend because by well, the end, of, because at the end of this book, Eleanor does not immediately need to be in a relationship. Eleanor needs nope. to keep working on, on who she is, but we do see a little hopeful, but we do see some hope in there of like, this is somebody who cares for her and has helped her change. And she is starting to see that she could, she is starting to see that she deserves to be with somebody like this. And we uh, just, uh, when Raymond and Laura don't work out, it's not because of Eleanor. It's not because of someone did something crappy. Raymond explains in really simple adult terms. I just think that she's not really my type and we're not meant for one another. And that's and that's it. Fine. There's nothing nasty. There's nothing nasty about her because it doesn't no. need to be. She's been a kind person yeah. in this book. And I think the relationship with Raymond, Eleanor tells us several times. We hear this like this this uh we hear her perk up when she hears about siblings and how she wishes she had a sibling and how she wishes she had somebody like that to share her life with. And of course, we find out later that she did have a sibling who was murdered by their mother and in the attempt that their mother made on both of their lives, Eleanor is our survivor. And I, I think that is where, uh, or I'm sorry, we find out that she did have a sibling that she lost her. The relationship with Raymond, the way it develops is, is, is brotherly. Like she, the person that she's always wanted, she's not looking for a father figure. She's not looking for a love interest, which are both easy tropes mm-hmm. to fall into. But her relationship with Raymond is brotherly. Like she finds someone that she does admire and that she likes and that she will base a romantic relationship on in the future, most likely. But it's not the one that got away or it's just like how a nice person treats her. Like to be loved in a in a platonic unconditionally by, that's what she's looking yeah. for is to be loved unconditionally because her mother didn't she's only had it once it was with the very young sister who died mm-hmm. yeah you know um something i i just wanted to something i had made a little note of um that's like a little easter egg or foreshadowing or whatever when she's with raymond and we're learning about she's often mentioning how she you know she wishes she had a sibling she's with raymond at his mother's house and this is a little interesting because again like she's she has all these awkward interactions with people and so now that she has raymond and then she meets raymond's mother and raymond's mother is also just kind and accepting and she's asking about eleanor's life like i kind of realized it when you're having all of these awkward conversations or we talk about how lonely Eleanor is, she doesn't have friends. She doesn't have people that she's, that she's talking about. She doesn't have people asking her about her life. You kind of miss opportunities to discuss yourself. Oh, that's interesting. And discuss your experiences and work through some of that baggage. People can never, people can, can never go through therapy and work through whatever it is that's made their lives unhappy or challenging with with friendships or with siblings or with your parents if you have a good relationship with them because you have a give and a take people ask about you they're interested in you and it gives you the opportunity to share your feelings and to share your life with them to hear yourself say things out loud and just or have someone else point out 
have, have an outside perspective on the things that have happened to you and you work through some things that way. So friendships, friendships and relationships are therapeutic um, in the way that a counseling session can be therapeutic as well. And so if you aren't having, if you're very lonely or your only interactions with people are so awkward that you're not getting that, that's kind of what, that's something that we see change for her. She's with these people that are kind to her and are able to reflect herself back to her a little bit which is part of that start of her journey of being able to work through some things because she has numbed herself to everything for years. She's just squashing them down below the surface in favor of this little routine. And she lets the negativity come out in these conversations with her mother. Yeah, which is... And otherwise, everything is very tamped down for her except for those conversations with her mother. But Speaking oh, but so... of the Fight Club comparison from earlier, were you... Did you have an inkling that the mother was? I did not. That actually was a Tyler Durden esque character. Just I did not. No, I really did not pick up on that. I picked up that like her mom was not always like truthful about things that had happened in the past. Um, but I was surprised to learn that her mother died in the fire. I was also. I, I mean, this is my second read, so I knew that her mother was dead. But I actually, you know what? Partway through, I remembered when I first started the book, actually, again, for the second time, I didn't remember that. Like the device worked. I, I was surprised. I, I remembered before the actual reveal in my second reading, but I did briefly forget as I was rereading this that that was that that was where that was going. Yeah. Oh, the, so that's the little the little Easter egg, the little foreshadowing um, that I wanted to share while she's with Ray, you know, while she's with Raymond and, and his mother and the mom is, is asking, you know, just asking about her background. And that's normal conversation to, to have with people seemingly. Um, and she says, um, I would have loved to have had siblings to grow up with. I thought about this. It's actually one of the greatest sources of sadness in my life. And it is one of the greatest sources of sadness yeah. in her life. Her mother has, her mother tried to kill her and her little sister she tries to save her little sister she's incapable of doing so because she's because she's a child and because firefighters can't always save people and that's their job right like sometimes that's just not p possible um and it is the greatest source of sadness so we do see that it's like someone someone asks her a question and it, it, she's able to kind of bring that up and these aren't things she's able to acknowledge to herself there's a couple of other little buried, I don't have them pulled, but there's a few other little things like that, that she mentions here and there, small voices. I think it's interesting that the book doesn't try to hide that there is a reveal coming. No, we know throughout it that like something, that there's something traumatic. Something's, something's rotten in Denmark. I mean, if you're an even moderately attentive reader, like you don't have to be like really, really like focusing to get that like, ah, something's, something's coming. There's going to be a, a turn in act two. There's a there's a thing that we aren't being told that Eleanor isn't being told or that was being hidden from us. I sort of appreciate it. I guess that's where the only tension. It's a sort of plotless novel in conventional terms. Like the plot is the emotional development and sort of unwinding and unpacking of a traumatic event of a person. It's we're not. She's not going, she's not falling in love throughout the book. She's not trying to solve a crime. She's not, I don't know, she doesn't need to get an ancient artifact back to the original. Well, she's in the UK. They don't return artifacts, but <laughs> she's 
Although, you know what? She's Scottish, so I should, I'm, I'm not going to put that on her. Uh, she just happens to be in the UK, <laughs> but their artifacts were probably also taken. But uh, the, you know, there, it doesn't have a conventional plot. We're just like, we need to, something needs to happen. So I guess that the, the, the plot mechanic is what are we going to find out as the reader that we haven't learned yet. Right. Well, what has happened to, to make her this way? And we get some of it throughout the book that, that her mom is very strange, that her mom is pushing this, this formal, we're, we're better, we are better than other people. We don't eat, we don't eat regular food. We don't eat these like fried fish sticks. We, we eat very fancy things, even though we learn that they can't always afford that. Um, we're better than all than other people. We need to be hanging out with other people that are high class, that have money, that or that present themselves in a certain way. And she is concerned about she's concerned about some of those things that she's gotten from her mother, some of the ideas and the judgment that she's gotten from her mother. We learned that her mother was really like fat phobic. Um mm-hmm. And yeah. and that she sees that in herself a little bit, and it's like, oh, I wonder what like what else I've gotten from mummy, and sh- and we see it a little bit throughout the book, and in the end of the book, she kind of comes to, um, like she's sitting on the bus, and talking about like the game of of who do you sit next to on the bus, and then nobody comes to sit next to her, and she's like, but I feel like I look normal, and then she has an interaction with someone that's like, maybe I should stop being so judgmental because she realizes where it's coming from at this point. She's starting to see that like maybe this isn't who I am. But this was quite literally beaten into her as a child. Yeah. Yes, it was. And I think it's good writing or good storytelling anyway, because that scene on the bus is a resolution to a lot of hypocrisies that we that are put in front of us by Eleanor Oliphant as the as the as the book and the story unfolds. And one that I marked was I think she's looking at Raymond and she's I noticed that he was wearing a duffel coat. A duffel coat, surely they were the preserve of children and small bears. I don't have the slightest clue what a duffel coat is, and I didn't look it up. I looked it up. But I presume it's what Paddington Bear wears. It is what Paddington Bear wears. It is a very (laughs) normal-looking coat, and it has those little toggles to close it, as opposed to, like, buttons or a zipper. Okay. It looks exactly like what you – it looks exactly like a coat. One paragraph earlier, this lady is struggling with the mittens she has tied to the cuffs of her coat. That she's not wearing because it's summer, by the way, but she's got she first of all, she wears mittens. Second of all, they're attached to her sleeves. And then she has the nerve to be like a duffel coat. Surely they were the preserve of children, small bears. There's and then she I has those terrible one. Velcro shoes. I can picture yes, I these think, shoes. I I hate these shoes for her. I picked this one just because I like the Paddington reference. Yeah. Um, but there's several of these throughout. Like she is very, very hypocritical and judgmental. And I I just, I think it's good storytelling that we actually get a resolution where the character is confronted with this piece of herself in the bus scene where nobody comes to sit by her. And she realizes that maybe she's a, maybe, maybe she is a person that other people either do this to, or maybe she should just stop doing it because what she's really just looking at is a guy who didn't wear socks today, not a madman, not a lunatic. Just a guy who didn't wear socks. And he was kind to her, right? Because she looks like she's going through something and he comes by to check on her, which is not something that all humans do for other people. If you live in New York City long enough, you will see people suffering and nobody checking in. And then sometimes you will see somebody stop to be like, do you need? Now, 
this is not to say the number of one time I was walking down uh, on the sidewalk on my way to work and this old woman, this old woman fell on the curb and she hit her head and her head was bleeding. And so many people stopped that I kept walking because like too many cooks in the kitchen. Somebody gave her her scarf, gave them, gave her their scarf to put on her head because it was bleeding. So I'm not saying that like, but I'm just saying. One time I stopped when a man fell down, hit his head on one of those uh, on the corner of a light post. Mm hmm. Cracked his head open, started bleeding. I went into a deli and got him a bunch of napkins and some other stuff, like a rat, like a like a cloth, and brought it out to him. And he lost his mind on me and cursed me out. And well, I regretted sure. also that. my <laughs> decision to become involved in this person's life. And lots of other people were now avoiding the situation because they had seen me get involved with it. And they're like, he's got it. And I am just getting verbally ripped apart by so yes, I mean. People don't check in. Sometimes they do, and they regret it. Sometimes they, sometimes so they do, they don't, and, it, right. and it's the kind thing to do. But no, it's just someone he's kind to her. He stops and checks in on her. He he stops exactly right, and that and that is an act of kindness, no matter how the person responds to it. I suppose, um, but, but yeah. So you know, he stops to check in. Um, something that I think because you brought up the the coat and yes, like the way she dresses it. Like so, we learned a little. So we learned through the book a little bit about her appearance. And that she does not present. And so I want to talk. I assume, about, I want I assume to, so these Velcro shoes were, presented, were, were perfect for every situation. For every situation. And it's like, you're a 30 year old woman that's got Velcro on her shoes. And you're over I here do, talking about somebody's, um, what was the jacket called? A duffel coat. A duffel. A duffel coat. I looked up a duffel coat. A duffel coat is just a coat. I've never seen something you, that did, looks less like a coat in a, my life. Did you look up a jerkin? No, I meant to. What does a jerkin look like? I just assumed it was some sort of like uh, raincoat. So, not being a uh, a, a real like uh, fashion icon myself, not having like a lot of sartorial uh, understanding, a, a jerkin in the classic sense is like um, I'm going to shorthand it, but like a medieval garment that you've probably seen women wear in medieval movies. Oh, and I'm looking at it right now. Like, like a tight vest with a little sleeve on the top and it usually hangs kind of low in the front and the back like it has tails almost and it's sort of fitted i don't know if it's one of those things where like it is also the name of a modern style of coat that like women are are aware it is not term being... i am looking okay. at it now I, i'm looking it up as we speak a jerkin is a man's short close-fitting jacket made usually of light colored leather and often without sleeves. Um, and so the, immediately under that, when you just type it into Google, what does jerkin mean in the UK? A sleeveless and collarless short jacket worn by men or women. So okay, like a yeah. like a, a vest of sorts. Um, I did. There were there were a couple of like there were more than a couple. There was a handful of uk-ish things in here some of which i looked up and some of which i was just sort of like you know what i'm not i don't need to get I, I, we need to do ticky boxy i didn't care to to know i think that just means like we got it i think i think we would just call it like we got to take off the boxes i know it, it's it's a but it but it, but right that's that's more of a uk expression that's not how we would say it here but i it's do also think their, that their, their 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 habit of um I, I I feel like they do like a lot of like sort of childish rhymy things as adults. The British awards that I mentioned at the beginning mm -hmm. of this podcast are also called the Nibbies. That's very British. 
that feels very UK. to me. Yeah. And I feel okay bringing this up because I have a quote I want to talk about later where she refers to holding a fork like a child or an American. So I feel like shots fired first, Gail Honeyman. <laughs> I want to come back to that too, because I want to understand how we hold our forks differently. <laughs> um, but I want to talk about this, this issue of appearance because it comes up throughout the book and it is because it comes up throughout the book. And I think that it's, and I think it's worth discussing on so many different levels. Um, so I have some things I want to go through. Um, so she she's talking about how she likes to do the crossword puzzle and, and read the newspaper as opposed to reading magazines. And this is at the beginning of the book. And she says, the magazines tell me which clothes and shoes to wear, how to have my hair styled in order to fit in. Um, and then a sentence later, this way I could disappear into every woman acceptability. The goal ultimately was successful camouflage as a human woman. Because she... She stands out. We learn about her appearance throughout the book, and she and she stands out a little bit. Like we've already talked about her hair, the jerkin, the mittens, and then a little later, um, as she's kind of on this journey of of improving her outward appearance, as it were, she says, "Did men ever look in the mirror? I wondered, and find themselves wanting in deeply fundamental ways." When they opened a newspaper or watched a film, were they presented with nothing but exceptionally handsome young men? And did this make them feel intimidated, inferior, because they were not as young and not as handsome? Did they then read newspaper articles ridiculing those same handsome men if they gained weight or wore something unflattering? The answer is yes. In case anybody <laughs> is wondering, yes. I was actually going to ask you, do, <laughs> do, men, do men feel this pressure about their appearance the way women do? I don't think it is as uh, prominent in media and culture as it is for women. I There's lots and lots of reasons behind that. We don't have to debate them, but it does exist. It is not as prominent as it is. I, I just, I don't think there's as many fashion magazines directed towards us as an audience edited by us as there are for women. So that takes a little bit of it out, but yeah, it definitely is like there's, I mean, like famous actors, uh, like famous athletes, the really cool guy and popular guy in school. And no, people talk uh, about men's appearance all the time. I think maybe if we asked Justin Bieber, who has had his appearance absolutely shredded online and in media since he was, what, 11? 10, 11, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 he's just the first person that springs to mind. Um, I think you can like I, I he's been absolutely decimated very publicly over and over again since he was a child about what he looked like and how he dressed and how he appears and i don't think it's quite as prominent as it is for women because i men and perhaps being very general less sartorially inclined i guess but no it's a thing so you know so appearance so we can talk about appearance as being this very superficial thing Right. Like we, we, you know, in this book, Laura, we hear a lot about Laura's appearance. Laura is very glamorous. Laura puts a lot of um, effort into what, into what she looks like, but so we can talk about it from this really superficial level, but appearances are also sort of important. They do tell us something about people. So we can talk about appearance from a superficial, a superficial standpoint. Um, Certainly. Certainly, there are people that are too focused on appearances, their own or other people's. We see that a little bit in this book and some of the judgment from that. 
But appearance can also be important um, for a couple of reasons. And, and one of those reasons can be how we feel about ourselves. Like if you feel like you show up someplace, like you're not looking your best, that maybe affects like how you feel and your, um, your level of confidence in any given situation. And, and like in professionalism, right, you should look a certain way. So I'll, um, and I do think that people feel more comfortable if you're in a professional setting and somebody looks professional when they're working with you. But it becomes a big thing in this book. Now, it is like a place where she sort of begins this journey to change herself. And she kind of has these hilarious experiences. Like she goes for a bikini wax and she doesn't really know what she's getting herself into there, which does make for like a really hilarious scene. Um, she goes to get a manicure and she finds that to be really over, like underwhelming, uh, a very underwhelming experience and that it doesn't, it doesn't make her feel, it does, and these things don't make her feel better. They don't make her feel changed. But then she goes to the department store and she asks for help because she recognizes that she needs some help. And we come back to that theme of kindness because the shop girl is really nice to her and helps her pick something out. And she doesn't put her in something outrageous. She puts her in an all black outfit. She puts her in very normal. Even I like, like reading it, just like, oh, she picked normal, just normal, updated, modern clothes for Eleanor for her date. Like she did right by her. She didn't put her in anything crazy. Exactly. She helps her. She comes out. You look great. She makes this suggestion about the shoes and she's not mean. It's not like what's with these shoes. These shoes are terrible. I think that the skinny jeans would look better with a pair of boots. And she's quick to point out, I don't work on commission. So again, we see this is just an act of kindness. You've asked me to help you pick out an outfit. Let me help you. Let me, let me help you complete the outfit. She sends her down to the makeup counter. Again, just being nice, not like, oh, you're not pretty. You have a scar on your face and you clearly want to cover that up. I understand that you're getting ready to go out and you're trying to make some sort of impression on somebody. Why don't you go down to the makeup counter, talk to the girls down there, tell them that I sent you. And that woman is also kind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Eleanor notes. She addresses the fact this woman has a scar on her face without staring at it or making it seem weird or making it seem like, oh, we have to cover that up. Just like, oh, I can probably do some things to blend this in. You really have a beautiful face. And clearly no one's told Eleanor that in her life. No, this book really focuses on, like I said, thoughtless kindness, the 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 banality of kindness almost to like sort of invert the, the famous... Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin commentary on the banality of evil, like just how uneffortful but meaningful the the sweeping grandeur of thoughtless kindness and how big of an impact it can have on some little weirdo sitting at your makeup counter. Exactly, and in those and then she gets her haircut by Laura, which we've touched on. And those changes do make her feel better they also make other people i think this is very interesting what you're going on here what you brought up if they make other people feel more comfortable feel better about her and i don't think it's i don't think the book is meaning for us to think her co-workers who find her a little more approachable are being superficial about it because appearance can also be a way to deliberately set yourself apart Right. That's true. Uh, yeah. I will. I will. Uh, uh, the clergy. Uh, we were uh, raised Catholic. 
uh, priests dress away to specifically set themselves apart from the flock. That's meant to denote a certain thing within uh, within ministerial work, right? Like it shows uh, a certain dedication to uh, maybe not poverty, but like they're, you know, uh, priests aren't known for being snazzy dressers. That's kind of not the point, right? Um, if we look at the, you and I both lived in New York, uh, the Hasidic culture in New York dresses a certain way specifically to separate themselves from the rest of us. This is who we are. And you can tell at first glance that we are not you. It's it's intentional. Uh, I think when her coworkers have this different reaction to her afterwards, I think that's what, I think the book is trying to kind of point to it doesn't feel like she is deliberately, they don't feel like she is deliberately separating herself from them like they previously did. Right. She's blending in a little bit more. And like, they still might be kind of schmucks. I'm not, I'm not trying to completely exonerate them because I think, I don't think they're necessary. I think as we learn more about Eleanor, we realize that their reaction to her is not necessarily completely unjustified. They do kind of seem like asses, but but like I said, Eleanor is mean. They do. <laughs> and does and she, not think very kindly little... of them for no particular reason. Like we can discern that prior to them not liking her very much, she was never particularly nice to them and that they have come by their assessment of her. Honestly, they might lack patience and a little bit of the kindness of Raymond, who is less quick to judge, but they might have come by their assessment of Eleanor, <laughs> honestly. Yes. Um, but I do think that, like I said, so we kind of, you know, as we kind of see her, her appearance changing a little bit, she's taking a little more like pride in her appearance. Cause I think there's also that value. Um, there's also that value in taking care of yourself a little bit though, too. Like that's something, let me put it this way. When you have some self-confidence and you were caring for yourself, it is because you also feel that you deserve that level of care. You deserve to take this little bit of extra time to to choose clothes that reflect you or to have a hairstyle that makes you look nice and gives you confidence like that level of self-care is is a way i think of telling yourself or showing to yourself that you that you deserve some kind of care i think if it's also not- interesting that it doesn't it doesn't work right away for eleanor like you mentioned like the bikini wax doesn't work the manicure doesn't work she sticks with it she keeps trying yeah She's not a quitter. But she feels good in the new clothes. She struggles with the boots a little bit. I don't know why they kept trying to put her in heels. Let this woman wear flats. Uh, I'd have put her in a solid flat black booty myself, but whatever. Um, but she, but again, I, I think that part of it is, like I said, I mean, when you're taking, when you're putting a little bit of effort into caring for yourself and a little bit of effort into sort of what you are, how you're presenting yourself into the world, Um, that again is an act that you, that you sort of deserve that. And you don't, you're never going to think that you deserve that or can accept that from other people if you can't do it for yourself. Right? Like she has to work on getting rid of her mother's voice in her head that she is ugly and useless and stupid because these are the things this woman is telling her. And she's taking some ownership of that, of like, I'm not. The shop girl, well, you know, we can we could work on covering the scar a little bit. Your face is really beautiful. We don't need to do much else. I think it's another example of a a more thoughtful way of presenting something that this book does that subverts that expectation that you and I talked about of it being like a quick 
a flimsy throwaway like Reese's Book Club are are kind of pre preconceived notions of this book. Like that it takes the time to analyze this a little bit a little bit deeper and against trope. That her her approach to appearance is not presented superficially. Like it takes the makeover trope and goes a little bit further with it and dissects it a little bit into what you said. Like it's not that someone cleans her up and now she's the bell of the ball. She feels better about herself. She feels better about exactly. She feels Other better people about herself. See her not like she's finally hot. Other people are just sort of like, oh, she's more approachable. This prickly sort of person is fits a little bit more into our idea of an approachable person. Yes. And she's taking it because we see throughout the book, she's at the beginning of the book, she's just existing. She has this routine. She's not doing things for herself because they really bring her any sense of, of joy. And then that starts to change throughout the book that she is not, that she is opening herself up to experiences and to feelings and that she does want more than simply existing. She wants to have this life. That's something that she admires in Laura. Laura's house looks like she's put effort into it. Yeah. Laura likes that she she puts effort into herself and she's not trying to be Laura, but she recognizes like Laura, Laura is also alone. She doesn't have a boyfriend. She lives in this home alone. She has a career. She has this very nice house. She presents herself, you know, in a, in a specific way. She doesn't want to be Laura. She wants what Laura has, which is a life. Laura's close to her family. She's mm-hmm. like a put together person who is existing without a lot of the like baggage that Laura both knows and doesn't know that she's carrying. And actually, I do want to talk about this a little bit. This is, I think, a weakness of this book is that Eleanor is so alien that it is slightly unbelievable. The other strengths of the book make up for it and move us along, and I didn't dwell on it too much. But like the first time I read this, I very much presumed, I very much thought that the author was trying to present a character with Asperger's or uh, some degree of autism or or something that was like a, a lifelong sort of a personality trait or or manner of thinking and then i read later in an interview one that i did on earth that like under no circumstances is eleanor a uh, an autistic person or somebody with asperger's it is purely the chronic post-traumatic post-traumatic stress disorder and fine she's the author she can make these things but like on paper like on the page it's like eleanor was just unfrozen and like like this could be a very different kind of book where they found her frozen at the bottom of a of a pool in Surrey or Essex and she is reanimated and has to come into regular she doesn't know what a tablet is. Did you just bring up She's the plot like, of Encino Man? Yes, I did. Because, <laughs> because it is an excellent movie. It's a, both an excellent movie. I uh, kudos to both Paulie Shore, Brendan Fraser, and Sean Astin in that one. But it this book skirts that. Like she doesn't know what a tablet is. She doesn't understand the differences in computers. She works at a job in modern Glasgow. Like she isn't, she hasn't been living in a lighthouse 
you know, on some point, some like, I don't know, rural forgotten part of Ireland or something like that, where she's never seen the real world. She watches television every single night. Like she lives right. in a modern, it's true. in a modern city. She the went to university. She, she'd have been, yeah, she'd have been keeping up with like the changes in technology based on having like been in school. And then we learned she immediately starts this job when she graduates um, from, uh, from university. Yeah, the things she doesn't know are egregious. And I think they're there because the author, it's easier for the author to make this transformation happen if she doesn't have to worry about like whether or not Eleanor knows what a mo. She also brings a lot of humor out of it, like Eleanor not knowing how to ask for a phone or a laptop. But I don't know. Like, as funny as I found the McDonald's scene, you tell me that a 30 year old woman in a major city in Scotland has never been to a McDonald's doesn't understand McDonald's is not aware of the McDonald's as a cultural touchstone or a restaurant. So like all of the trauma in the world does not explain not recognizing McDonald's. <laughs> right. So this brings us to, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier um, and you and I talked about it briefly before we started recording so I, I don't disagree with you that some of it is pretty egregious, like what she has not picked up. Yeah, even though, I, that, that, even that is my is, one. She she insulates herself a little bit and it is we are meant to we are meant it's a little overdone. We are meant to see that she's really insulated herself and that she's just sort of been like existing and not participating in life. Um, but but I to to but I agree that it is a little overdone. It's oversold, in my opinion, when she, some of the phrases and stuff that she doesn't recognize that I, as a non-UK citizen, do recognize that are not in my like American vernacular of English, that like I do still recognize what they mean just from the context clue of, uh, of Raymond saying he, I don't know, had, he says something like it was, it was quite a late one last night. She's like, I have no idea what he's talking about. There's no way you understand English and don't understand that context. Well, because context, <laughs> context clues for that means that I stayed up late at the very least. I mean, at the very right? least, like, yeah. Like, there's some of these. Like, I have no idea what she's talking about. Where we're sort of like, you, this is. <sighs> we need it there so that we can buy the fact that Eleanor has completely blocked out everything about her life i don't know but there's also that like it's just she's blocked out everything about mummy and marion and the fire and all of these things but she remembers a lot of the foster homes in detail like she remembers declan in details but like she's there's an inconsistency between how functional she is and how completely unfunctional she is that isn't resolved in the narrative and i still enjoy the book for that reason but i i've read some I, I think point. it's a, i don't i think it's a legitimate because she's legitimate very self-sufficient yeah she's very self-sufficient this is somebody book. who this is someone who lives alone has a flat has a paycheck pays her bills you have to set up daughter's appointments and so i mean agreed there seems like she would know a little more in life nobody's doing anything for her Nobody cares for nobody cares for her that she would be able to not know how some things work. So it's like with this level of self-sufficiency that she has in her like day-to-day 
existence, it does seem like a little more would cross her path. But I do also feel like it's that narrative tool to give us, we've touched on this a little earlier, this like anthropological view of like humanity and and rituals and things that the rest of us just take for granted as part of everyday life, that level of, of outer spaceness in Eleanor gives us, it gives the author that chance to kind of pull back and make these observations. Like we talked about McDonald's, how she seems like so sort of baffled by McDonald's and like unaware of the things that are on the menu. It's done to a point though, where the author has had to address that the character does not have Asperger's in interviews. Like that's how far she went in the direction of Eleanor not understanding the world around her. Like I've never ordered a pizza before when it comes, surely they'll pour me a glass. Like what, pour me a glass of wine and that's just so far it's so far out and like she does go get food every day like she says like at work like oh i've stopped bringing my lunch because i she's also got a television have you just have you ever have you ever met someone like here in the states have you ever met someone from a foreign country who's like oh i learned how to speak english from tv there's people who have completely acclimated to countries they're not from through television right you've never seen someone on tv order a pizza you don't understand how food delivery works and again like she goes and she eats lunch every she goes and get and she purchases her lunch somewhere every day are those not also like it's not a fast food establishment in that it isn't like specifically mcdonald's or burger king but like i've worked in an office i know where you go get lunch when you work in an office it is also fast and convenient right like the setup is very similar she she goes back to her office and eats like they also wrap up her sandwich that she purchases every day in paper or however uh, yeah, it's presented, it, and she takes it back into the office and eats it there so it there so i do see what you're saying like and then in the mcdonald's scene she's like i wondered why humans would willingly queue at a counter to request processed food then carry it to a table which was not even set and then eat it from the paper she does this every day but you do with this- her meal deal Right, exactly. It she's maybe not considering that the food is not as processed as um as it would be from a place like McDonald's and that's I mean that's that's a difference. But like but otherwise what's different about what you're doing where you go get lunch? Where you're going to go buy your soup and your sandwich every day. I take a few points off the book just that the extraordinary alienness of Eleanor necessarily benefits the the emotional push and pull of the novel. I think it makes for some humorous it makes for things, s- but for some but humorous things. Sometimes I can't stop like thinking that like she's I, like the McDonald's scene, which is both funny but also like this feels contrived because. Eleanor seriously needs to not understand McDonald's. Like she's so outside of everybody else's uh, modern experience that like this is baffling to her that it it feels a little, some of the humorous scenes like that feel a little contrived because of. Because uh, it's a little bit of like, it's a little bit of Encino man, but like, yeah, yeah. You haven't been encased in ice underneath this California pool for all this time. Like I think, I think the same thing is accomplished through the running gag of her not understanding Raymond's T-shirts. Yeah, like, I like that. There's, like, a, there's like, a Breaking I, Bad T-shirt, Polios Armados. There's a Breaking Bad <laughs> shirt, T-shirt. Yeah. There's a there's a a wire like the show The Wire from HBO, uh, Peanuts, and those are the three that I jotted down. But 
I think that accomplishes the sort of very simply and within the narrative, it's diegetic, I think, like of of her not necessarily being up on pop culture and modern media, whereas the like, what's a tablet? What's a mobile phone is unnecessarily so far. Like, she could understand what these things are and just not know how. To, like, that scene in the department store could work just as well without the sort of bizarre allusion to the fact that she doesn't understand what a tablet is or what the internet is. I don't know. She works in an office. Like you just, there's no way you don't know these things. Even so, even when we talk about like the, um, when she goes to the department store for clothes and the girl sends her down to the Bobby Brown counter, the joke comes up a few times. Like she asks for Bobby Brown and Bobby Brown isn't there. And the joke comes up a few times. Like she goes back and it's like, Bobby's still not working. Everything on the Bobby Brown counter says Bobby Brown on it. No, it's a it's it's a time Why don't travel you understand joke. It just doesn't fit in this narrative. Like the initial like, 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 I asked like for Bobby and she wasn't there is kind of funny, but then it, it it comes up one or two more times. But like you're you're sitting at this counter, they're using these products. The products say Bobby Brown on them. I feel like you understand what marketing is. And while I understand that she has had trauma in her life and that she has like repressed some things and that like we're working to overcome this trauma, the fact that it's like erased her memory of how the world works is right. Like I said, it's a time travel joke. This is the brand of, of makeup. Like you go down there and every counter has like a different name on it. The products all have that different name on it. This one says Bobby Brown and all of the products say Bobby Brown. Like you go to Tesco all the time. You understand what name brands are. You understand what name brands are. You understand that when something says Coca-Cola, it has Coca-Cola in it and that's different yeah. than Sprite or whatever. Yeah. And, it's, and instead of this sort of like ongoing thing that it's like they, I, I don't know, like they went back in time and brought William Wallace to the future. And he's like, who is this Bobby Brown? Like, <laughs> like I said, they're, yeah. they're like time travel movie jokes that don't. That don't. That, I don't think they don't contribute. gel quite. Yeah. No, and they're mostly used for like the the. I, I think some they're mostly used for humor, and I don't think that they're the best jokes in the book, and I don't think they're necessary. And honestly, the book could have lost uh, fifty pages or so. It's a little long, and I think we could have removed some of that. We would have had a tighter, a even better novel than, and I think it would have made more sense for the character. Um, I do like though that so something I did like though, like we've talked about is 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 her that third party view of, of some everyday things. They, they get a yes. little bit too much, but one of them, but like one of them and this, and this does work. This does fit really well. Um, when they're going to the party at Laura's house for Sammy Tom. Um, and like, she's waiting for Raymond so they can meet and go into the party together and he's late and she's annoyed. So he's explaining to her, but like, you don't go to a party on time. Like that's rude. If, the, if someone yeah. tells you the party starts at 7.30, you should go at 8. And she doesn't get that. But, like, that makes sense because she doesn't do social things. I think that, that tracks works. really well. And that is, I think, also just this hilarious third-party view of, like, why do we do that? Like, why would you tell people to come over at 7.30 if you're not going to be ready? But that is true. That is a thing, right? Nobody wants to be the first I, person to show up at a party, and it is kind of rude. I think that also works for a character who is a lonely person who is isolated and who is not engaging in social things. I think that tracks for the character, for the story. And I think it is both like one of those little sort of sadly funny, like bleak observations that that, that give us the Eleanor voice that we like. 
I don't think not understanding who Bobby Brown is works quite the same way. Like I said, the the initial of someone was like, oh, like go down because she said because the saleswoman says like go down to Bobby Brown and tell them that I sent you, which does make it seem like you were going down yeah. to speak to this woman, Bobby Brown, tell her that I sent you. But then I feel like once you get down there and you take a look around, this woman goes to stores all of the time. She says she goes to Marks and Spencer every week, which I believe is a department store in the UK. Um, it's a store, leastwise, in the UK. And again, yeah. stores are full of products that have brands on them. So I feel like you go down there and you look around and you get a sense. So the fact that that joke popped up a couple of times is a little bit like, why don't you understand? Why haven't you picked up on this by now? Because the character is intelligent. Even if they had just done it the one time, because it's used for like the sales clerk gets a laugh out of it and likes Eleanor because she thinks she's being fun. Yeah. That works just fine. And if they had left it there and Eleanor had been like, oh, I realize now that I misunderstood the woman upstairs and that Bobby Brown is a kind of makeup I've never heard of. Because you're right. The character is intelligent. She's very smart. Like there's, it's just... Anyway, I don't, we don't need to belabor it. Um, that's, that I think is the sort of thing that is the one weakness of the novel. I think it contributes, I feel like we could have shaved some pages off by getting rid of it. And I think it doesn't really work for the character, but small complaint. Can we talk about a couple of things? I have a couple of things that I really like. When she goes to the doctor and she says i got the young doctor this time the pale chap with the red hair which i was pleased about the younger they are the more recent they're training and that can only be a good thing i hate it when i get old dr wilson she's about 60 and i can't imagine she knows much about the latest drugs and medical breakthroughs she can barely work the computer again a little bit of the hypocrisy of her because she doesn't know how to order a mobile phone or what a tablet is but um there's this on just uh, you mentioned things that like eleanor says that you're like yes this was one there's this this ongoing thing that like young doctors are inexperienced and stupid that i personally find ridiculous it's one of my eleanor moments in the world like why do we why is this the perceived ongoing thing that we all have like i need that older doctor who's got some experience like i'm with eleanor on this i want someone who's like read all these books recently it's maybe true. i don't want the maybe i don't want the first day at a med school person but like I don't need my doctor to be the age of my president, which is to say, you know, 365 days from a coffin. Like I, <laughs> like, like a nice youngish doctor is completely fine with me. Um, it is. And something, and I mean, I get, again, as somebody who works in healthcare, um, when people are newer in the healthcare field, they're also, I mean, and this might be different in the UK because they're healthcare system is arguably much better than ours. Um, although I suppose that depends on who you ask. However, I think you're not as jaded. Um, there's more of an excitement and there's more of a freshness into it. And there is more of this like want to help instead of assume, instead of making like assumptions that I think come the longer you work um, in the healthcare field or in a lot of fields probably, but we are talking specifically about healthcare. Um, but I did also find that to be an interesting observation of just like, well, they've, they've just learned everything. And then, like I said, it is something that I see that, and it's something that I hear when, when newer practitioners come in is like, Ooh, you're fresh, you're excited. And people look at that as a good thing. Something we talked about in our, I think in our last podcast about the characters, about the books that our characters are reading, um, I made a little note that early on in the book, she's reading Jane Eyre and it's one of her favorite books. 
Um, the legacy that that uh, that Jane Austen has left on the UK is there an American corollary to that? Like the I was probably like a you, man. Like she mentions, like Jane Eyre, and this book also has it, it, it. I think sort of lovingly plays with the tropes of a Jane Austen novel, mm-hmm. like with our heroine, and and I think takes some pleasure in like shifting that into something that is a little bit more modern, and deals with something that is a little bit, uh, you know, loneliness, um, the trauma of abuse, etc. Is there an American corollary to the Jane Austen's Charles Dickens impact uh, on British literature, like here in the U.S., where even today, like this book coming out in 2017, both references those novels. The character is reading it and uses some of the pattern and you know uh, some of the narrative pattern of those books. I'm gonna have to think about it. I can't, I can't, there's nothing that jumps out to me off the top of my head, but I'm sure that it is a white male author. If we have that. <laughs> so what she said about, so what Eleanor says about Jane Eyre um, and why, what she likes about the book, she describes the book, a strange child, difficult to love, a lonely, only child. She's left to deal with so much pain at such a young age. The aftermath of death, the absence of love. So I don't think that there's any surprises um, there to the reader. We already know these things. We already know that Eleanor is a strange child. Her mother seems to tell her that she's not easy to love. Um, she's lonely. She is an only child. We at this point we think she's an only child, um, and she has been left to deal with so much pain at such a young age. The aftermath of death and the absence of love. So we see that that is basically Eleanor's story boiled down and she says that this is one of her favorite books and it's a book that she goes back to and reads time and again she mentions another one that you being um an austin reader she mentions sense and sensibility is that uh the story of eleanor and marianne i haven't read i have not read sense and sensibility because we don't know that the sister's name is marianne at the point where she makes this reference where she says i love the story of eleanor and marianne it all ends happily which is highly unrealistic but i must admit narratively satisfying and i understand why miss austin adhered to the convention which you mentioned easter eggs earlier that's a deep one that lets because marianne is her sister's name the story of eleanor and marianne that we're reading does not end happily correct it does not and I think that it's that sense. Something that's big in this book is that Eleanor has been, you know, she talks about how she's just been existing. Um, Something we haven't really discussed on this podcast, and I don't think it bears like a a huge conversation though, is her, is her use of alcohol. Um, And I would not say that. Yeah. So she's using alcohol to dull and to press down her trauma. And she said, you know, she says, as as the therapist and as Raymond are trying to dig a little bit, she doesn't she doesn't know what happened. She doesn't remember what happened. Um, she can't quite tell us that she did have a little sister for a long time in the book. 
but she clearly knows it. It's clearly there. And we see it in comments like this. Like we see it in the comment about Jane Eyre that she's been left to deal with so much death. So like she knows someone has died Um, in this exactly like you pointed out the story of Eleanor and Marion. I do remember when I was going back at the things I had marked being like, oh, Eleanor and Marion, this is what we're, this is her and her sister. Um, so she, you know, and saying, oh, they had a happy ending. And, and I appreciate that, even though that's not normally how things end. So she clearly, it's, it's there. I think it's just below the surface and she doesn't want to acknowledge it. Because, she- and that's also one that just like, we don't, I mean, we don't find out until much later in the novel that she is referencing the actual events of her life without realizing right. it. When she says that she likes that Eleanor and Marianne in this book end happily. And they, you know, she's picked the name Eleanor for herself. Like that's not her real name. Like she's given herself the name of the character whose story with Marianne ends happily in Jane oh, Austen's nice. book. Yeah, I hadn't. I've she mentions it in that scene that like like it's one of the only like there aren't a lot of Eleanors. You don't read about them a lot. She liked this name and she likes that it ends happily. And that she we don't know at that time either that she gave herself that name, but she she it's not her real name. That's interesting. But she's adopted the name of the person whose story with Marianne ends far differently than her story with Marianne. I'm really glad you brought that up. I hadn't, because, you know, when she talks about how she's chosen the name, she's kind of, she, she talks about it a little bit in reference to Oliphant being her last name. So I didn't, I didn't pick up on that. I did consequently, before we started this podcast, look up um, the word Oliphant to see if what symbolism might be there. Um, Here's what I found. Oliphant is a wind instrument of the Middle Ages made from elephant's tusks. Um, And oliphants are a type of monster separately. Uh, It is a monster in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, And it is a monster in the Lord of the Rings. It's like an elephantine um, monster in Lord of the Rings. I didn't pick up anything from the wind instrument, but when I did read that it it was a type of monster in these like um, fantasy, this fantasy game and these, this fantasy series, it made me wonder if that's like, if she picked that because she, you know, she feels that there's something wrong with her. She feels this darkness inside of her. Um, She's also a classics uh, major. Right. And I, think I so, yeah. presume that Tolkien is a classic or at the very least in the UK where he's from. Right. Like that must He's got to be, yeah. And I mean, she says she, she says she kind of jumps around in terms of what of what she reads. She's very open in terms of what she reads. She reads all types of different books, and and there are there are other things that she's reading that crop up throughout the novel um, that just didn't it, that didn't I mean, I not. Like that she makes go ahead. I like that she makes the joke like you can't forget the elephant in the room, and that no one and that Raymond doesn't like. Oh, I did. Yeah, I enjoyed that too. That was a good line. Um, I was wondering, I just should have looked it up. I was wondering about the significance of Oliphant. Uh, Timothy Oliphant, the actor, is the only other Oliphant I've ever heard about in my entire life. And I, Yeah, the I, Wikipedia I know, page is interesting. It is, you know, there are, um, there's like a bridge that, I mean, it is, it is just, it is a name. It is just like a surname that is around. So there are some 
some things around the world that have like Oliphant in the title or the name of it. Like there was like a bridge that's like something with Oliphant in it. There were some different spellings and stuff um, in, in terms of the entomology or whatever of this word. Um, but like I said, I, I didn't. So I looked it up just out of curiosity. I didn't find anything that was so um, that, that was super direct, I guess, in, in terms of the theme of the book. So I'm glad that you picked up that she's picked that name, Eleanor, from Sense and Sensibility. Because Eleanor because she has a happy ending with Marianne. Yeah. And that's not something that she gets. So we want to go. I do to... also you mentioned you, you mentioned her alcohol use, and I do just want to um highlight did you did you notice the recurrence where when Sammy when Samuel Tom falls in the street and Eleanor accuses him of being a drunk and tells Raymond to just leave him there, drunks fall down all the time and he'll be perfectly fine. And Raymond's like, what? No. And he and he goes and picks what Eleanor thinks is a drunk, goes in to help mm-hmm. him. And then later, there's another drunk lying on the floor who has fallen down. And Raymond doesn't leave that one alone either, but like burst, like gets himself in the door. When she, you mean during, Ele- you mean during Eleanor, her dark time, right? Yes, during Eleanor. her dark time. Yes. Yeah, I'm referring to Eleanor. Like it's a, is it foreshadowing? Like she like accuses the guy of being a drunk, which he's not. And Raymond doesn't let that uh, sit. He goes to like offer help. And then when it happens to her, uh, and also it's not just because she's a drunk who has fallen down. She's trying to kill herself. But Raymond also at that exact same, in a very similar sort of thing, like gets himself into the apartment and doesn't leave her there either. And I thought that and was it's interesting. Hooray for Raymond just for being a sweet for being character a sweet in a person. book with and and also I just I like that they're I'm just I'm really charmed by the fact that the author was like, I don't need to pin a whole lot of crap behind him to justify normal human kindness. Some people are just kind. Some people just have kindness in them and they show it to all sorts of people, regardless of their level of weirdness or awkwardness. Um, and he's not even overly kind. He's just a regular. He's just person. a regular person like who's, who is who is yeah. who is nice to her, right? He also doesn't seem to be taking her on as a project. No, he doesn't. Like he's not. Like it's it's a very. He's not trying to fix her. He doesn't recognize that there's a good person underneath it all. Like he's being. Uh, for example, when he's like chatting with her about the promotion, he's like, "Well, you don't want to work." He just he. He treats her and makes assumptions about her as though she is not weird a lot of times. He's like, well, you don't want to work there forever. And it never occurred to her that she wouldn't work there forever. But Raymond isn't taking her specialness or her weirdness into account. He's just, she's not a project for him. He thinks she must have normal interior thoughts and that she is perhaps a little weird, but not specially so. He doesn't seem to be trying to like, he's not trying to earn a merit badge or fix somebody he's just yeah i work with this lady she seems fine right real casual all right do you want to play the eleanor Oliphant let's game? play the eleanor yes let's play the Elef- the the eleanor oliphant game and for our listeners this game is a surprise to me okay uh the first part of the game is i have picked five of i've randomly picked five of eleanor's 50 cent words that she has used that is peppered throughout this book and you will guess you can guess the definition so the first one is bibelot b-i-b-e-l-o-t bibelot 
It comes from the scene where she is looking around Laura's house and admiring it. And I believe she takes a look through shelves with bibelots. So like something I'm, I'm not quoting. So it. it's like tchotchkes. Ding, 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 ding. Small decorative ornaments or trinkets like tchotchkes. Nice. Okay. The next. Context uh, clues. <laughs> The next uh, elephant, uh, uh, sorry, the next Eleanor, Eleanor Oliphant word is sagacious. Um, it is when she is, I think, getting her nails done. And I can't remember what it is that the woman says, but Eleanor says that she observes it sagaciously. Hmm. Not enough context clues. I don't know what it, I can't, I can't remember. I remember making note of it. Um, and I wanted to look it up, but I was in the middle. I like didn't. I didn't stop to look it up. In a wise or thoughtful manner, uh, synonyms include acutely or astutely is probably the the one that we would use in place. Oh, because like that root word, so, yeah, like, very astute. That root word, like sage, is in there, right? Like for someone to give you like sage you advice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, one for one. I'm sorry, one for two. Yeah, fifty percent. Okay, the next one. Um, I pit. I picked this one because uh, it's in the Big Lebowski, but micturate, M-I-C-T-U-R-A-T-E, micturate. I need some context clues. Uh, I believe she refers to, I think she's talking about her cat when she gets the cat. Um, now this is going to give it away, but micturating, I think, in the litter box. Oh, so like using the bathroom? It is to pass urine or urinate. And for our listeners who are big Lebowski fans, obviously the plot of that movie hinges on somebody micturating on the dude's rug, nice. as is pointed out in the movie. Um, okay, two for three. Our next one is friable, F-R-I-A-B-L-E, friable. It's, uh, she uses it when they're in the cafe. She refers to something as being friable. And I, it's not the real obvious thing that fry right i think it just means like like delicious no it means easily crumbled or pulverized oh wow i would not have yeah, no, no one either all right two for two back to 50 percent, and you're uh the i don't know the for all the marbles the, the, the i guess the you can go above 50 percent or below with this one profligate P-R-O-F-L-I-G-A-T-E, profligate. What are my context? Uh, this, this I feel like I'm more familiar with. What are my context clues, though? I need it in context. Um, a profligate consumer of energy or uh, she she says it when um, she says it, I think, when when Raymond tips too much in her opinion and she refers to him as being profligate oh yeah okay yeah i feel like profligate is like like excessive yes ding 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 recklessly extravagant or wasteful in the use of resources that that i feel uh, like was a word i was like familiar with uh from all right like three else. for five not bad not bad okay the next part of the eleanor oliphant games is do you so when she is in the YMCA dance scene at Keith's 40th birthday, um, she has some comments on music and she's talking about, I don't know why, maybe it's not so strange that there's a dance based on the Young Men's Christian Association. 
And her quote is, people did seem to sing about umbrellas and fire starting and Emily Bronte novels. So I supposed why not a gender and faith-based youth organization? And this part of the Eleanor Oliphant Games is, do you know what song is about umbrellas? Rihanna. Ding, 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 ding. Yes, Rihanna's umbrella. Do you know what song is about fire starting? I'm going to assume Billy Joel. We didn't start the fire. Ding, 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 ding. And do you know which one is about Emily Bronte novels? No, that one I was trying to um, figure out when I was reading it. I, that one I don't know. It is Kate Bush's Wuthering Heights. Oh, yeah, that one feels right there. Kate, Kate, Kate Bush, Kate Bush, who everybody has re-remembered recently because Stranger, because Things, Stranger Things used running up that hill. Yes, those are the Eleanor Oliphant games. Well done, Rebecca. You did not get 100%, but you were above average for both games. I think I did, Three, okay. Four, five. Three for five and two for three. I'll take it. Um, do you want to do co- quotes? I do want to do quotes. Uh, do you want to start? She's gonna. Uh, she's about to close her eyes like she's going to sleep at night. She says, I closed my eyes. Eyelids are really just flesh curtains. Your eyes are always on, always looking. When you close them, you're watching the thin vein skin of your inner eyelid rather than staring out at the world. It's not a comforting thought. I just really liked the description of eyelids as flesh curtains and the fact that your eyes are always on, even when they're closed, they are still looking at like the insides of your eyelids. And I just, I just enjoyed that. I thought that was interesting. I reread that a couple of times because it, like it upsets uh, Eleanor. It also slightly upset Mm -hmm. me when I find out. Um, My first one is, I've never made a sausage roll. I don't suppose it's terribly difficult, though. It's only pastry and mechanically recovered meat. <laughs> and it's specifically the phrase mechanically recovered meat that makes me makes me bring that one up. What else you got? Um, so she's getting dressed to go to Sammy Tom's funeral. And like she's like bought this new outfit um, of, you know, black, black things, black dress, black tights. Um and she's got she's getting it all ready for the next day. And she said, I hung everything up carefully. I was ready. Bring out your dead. <laughs> uh, and I like that, A, because it just I just I like like the dryness of it, I think is really funny. Um, and it also reminded me of um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It also had that's a good reference. It also had how did you describe it? The. um the humorous nihilism hilariously nihilistic hilariously yeah. nihilistic that fits well with that uh my next one is she's talking about music and i think she's talking about the the guy who she's like uh kind of stalking and in love with and going to his show but she's she refers to music as basically audible physics waves and energized particles and like most sane people i have no interest in physics yeah i enjoyed that line too uh, my last one uh, is also in reference to music. So she wants to go to the venue where Johnny Loman's going to be playing in a couple weeks. She wants to do like a dry run and she ends up at like a death metal show with Raymond. <laughs> and she just goes like running out of the venue. <laughs> and he asks her what's wrong. And she says, the horror, Raymond, the horror. Um, and I like that because that's a Heart of Darkness <laughs> reference. 
I also like that she says it. She's a classic. She's a classic. She's a classics major, and that is a line from Kurtz and Heart of Darkness, um, which I think is another, which I think is another good reference because her heart is currently filled with darkness. Also, I got to tell you, as someone who who occasionally dabbles in in death metal and grindcore, and has been to uh, Maryland Death Fest several times, um, it's not it's not an inappropriate response to death metal. Like it's a it's a it's a it's a unique genre it's very specific unto itself um i have one of eleanor's mean comments but i still like it sport is a mystery to me in primary school sports day was the one day of the year when the less academically gifted students could triumph winning prizes for jumping fastest in a sack or running from point a to point b more quickly than their classmates how they love to wear those badges on their blazers the next day, as if a silver and the egg and spoon race was some sort of compensation for not understanding how to use an apostrophe. <laughs> it is mean, and I, but I also enjoyed that and, and felt like it was funny. Um, um, I also have, I, I looked out the window for a moment as I tried and failed to understand the reproductive system of the panda. I have it without context. I just thought that was funny i got a laugh out of that this is less of a quote and more of just something that i really enjoyed and thought was funny um the fact that she names the cat glenn yes i like that uh i like the i like the symbolism behind it that she has replaced like drinking and repressing her feelings with like opening her heart and taking responsibility for a character taking responsibility for another like being again which is something that she feels that she failed at um, with Marion and I, I just, and I, but again, kind of hilariously nihilistic. I also thought that was very funny. I also appreciated it just building off that quote, the, um, the cat was found in a garbage can that had been set on fire and she runs and vomits when she hears that. And at this point in the novel, we have like, we found Eleanor on the floor, Raymond has saved her. We've, we've, we're on the downslope of healing and things like that. But I like that the novel doesn't tie it up with a bow. Here's a cat. Everything's fine. It reminds us that like, while the Raymonds of the world exist and the Laura's and the Keith's and the Sammy's and the Bob at work and all these other people do exist and are there for our support that like, that's not, that's not all of the world. These terrible things are still going terrible on things even are just happening. last night. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have, let's see, the barman was well over six feet tall and had created strange, enormous holes in his earlobes by inserting little black plastic circles in order to push back the skin. For some reason, I was reminded of my shower curtain. <laughs> Love it. Right, yeah. right there with you, Eleanor. Um, I have building off of yours about bringing out your dad. I just, again, context free. Look out Saturday night. Here comes Eleanor. Old. <laughs> I will say I could quote a lot of this book. There are a lot. There are a lot of just very hilarious things in whatever this book. Raymond was eating smelled disgusting, like gently reheated vomit. <laughs> and while that's a little bit of just like a like a a middle grade middle school joke, it's the gently it's the gently that is used in there. Yeah, gently reheated, which is what's so funny about it. Uh, we never did solve why. He wasn't using a knife, but held a fork in his right hand like a child or an American. 
I'm not entirely sure what that refers to. Maybe it's holding it upside down to cut instead of using a knife and holding it like with the curve. I'm not, I I don't know. I didn't, I didn't understand what that, what that meant either. I didn't understand if it was like eating with your right hand. Is that not something that like. Surely all of the UK is not eating left-handed. That's not, we're not Eleanor. That can't be right. There's left-handed people. Most people people are right-handed. Most people eat with their right hand. Maybe the UK all eats left-handed and we just don't know that. As somebody left-handed who constantly has to organize where I'm sitting at a dinner table with like other humans, um, lots of people eat above what I mean, again, that's an American experience. But yeah, I feel like, I mean, also I've been to the UK and I don't remember everybody eating left-handed. If we've got any UK listeners and you've got some light you can shed on that, on what it means to hold a fork like a child or an American, we're all ears. curious. Like to know. Yes. How is it? How is it that we are holding forks differently? Or unless um, it's like if you're holding do... it, like if you're holding it like full fisted, like at the top, instead of holding it, um, you know, between your, th- your thumb and index finger with it resting on your middle finger to eat. Does that make sense? As, Maybe. Like if you're just like whole fisting it like, like that's what little kids do a lot of times right is, like if I, they start just, to I mean, build I've... their like fine motor dexterity like they're just like grip the whole top of it and stab things with it but like i don't what is worth i don't eat that way i i i've spent almost my entire life in, in the united states of america and I, I don't think most people eat that way but but maybe from a uk perspective we eat crazy crazy fork users maybe yeah it's true Um, my last one i just thought this was a nice way of phrasing something it's not particularly funny but i felt like a newly laid egg all swishy and gloopy inside and so fragile that the slightest pressure could break me yeah that was a a particularly like poetic line i think yeah i just thought that was well written i think i've gone Um, through my um I've gone through, I think, like my, my like funniest favorite. Favorite. Quotes. I mean, I've got like a dozen more here, but I, I you know, the, we should put a time limit on this. I will add. There's one that I wrote down. The musician was upstairs on the first floor. This is just a personal observation in Peccadillo, but abroad, the first floor is the second floor. Did you know that? The first they call the first floor the ground floor, and they call the second floor the first floor because because they're wrong uh but i um <laughs> i feel like i have heard that before it's madness it is madness so would you recommend this i would i would absolutely recommend this book i would recommend looking past whatever it was that did not appeal to me about this book when it was sent to me and i've had this book like i said literally for a few years and when you said you wanted to do it for the podcast my thought was just like oh, i don't know if i'm that excited about it but i do already own it so there's that um, and I was very pleasantly surprised by the contents of this book. Yeah, I think it takes a somewhat straightforward story and elevates it with a thoughtful approach and a thoughtful description of, I don't know, of a lonely person. And I think the exploration of loneliness, while while we mentioned that it might portray our lonely character in, in, in terms that are a little unrealistic. Um, I do think it's a really enjoyable read and I would recommend it as well. Um, and since we didn't let ourselves off the hook with a lighthearted, fun book this time, why stop? <laughs> Let's do an, 
let's let's do an apocalyptic book about about the slow slow descent uh out of civilization and next time let's do parable of the sower we're finally coming we're back finally coming it. back to it my my library has produced uh the copy that i needed kennedy will be reading my copy um and uh and then, i'm looking forward to discussing it yeah me too and then next time we will try to do something that is genuinely lighthearted. maybe we'll find something that's a little a little lighter there I mean, again, what, was, um, what so, was teasing about Eleanor Oliphant is that from the outside of this book, I did expect this to be a lighthearted novel. Deceptive marketing. So thank you for joining us. You can write us, as always, at readingpopclassics at gmail.com. If you've got some suggestions for books, some answers to questions that we raised on this podcast, or nice things to say about us, specifically nice things to say, those, those are the topics you can write us about. All right. See you next time. See you next time. <laughs>